Welcome to Own the Microphone. Join me, Bridget McGowan, an award-winning international professional speaker and owner of the independent publishing company, BMAC Talks Press. Hello, everybody. Welcome to today's episode of Own the Microphone. I'm joined in the studio by Ricardo Gonzalez, who is coming in to us from the Dominican Republic. Ricardo, welcome to the show. How are you, Bridget? Great to be here and to be with you. I am doing fantastically well. Now, you were sharing with me before we started our recorded conversation that you got your start speaking in the church. Talk to me about that. Well, you know, like uh, Whitney Houston learned to sing in the church, right? Right. right. I, I learned to speak in the church. My first speech ever, I was 16 and it was sponsored by the church youth group and it was a large church. And it was a Sunday night and they asked for one of the youth to speak. And so I was asked to speak and there were 700 people there. And so I remember exactly what I spoke on and I had 12 minutes. And after I was done, and it was just felt so amazing. It was, it was the most amazing feeling I'd ever had in my life to that point. And after that, I had several leaders in the church come up to me and they started saying, you know, that was amazing. That was great. God has his hand on you. You have a special gift, all of this wonderful stuff. And it was the first time in my life that I really started to believe in myself. So I think the combination of the church and that belief in my speaking skills really set me on, on really my career path just through the years so it's been fascinating yeah okay one no prep so you were just asked on the spot they didn't teach me how to speak they didn't say speak on this they said you've got 12 minutes and it was the first time I had ever stood up in front of a group of people and spoke and it was 700 people what was the topic the topic was Ephesians chapter 2 in the New Testament, and um, or Ephesians, maybe it was five. I can't remember now, but it was. I know it was in the book of Ephesians. It's been so many years, right? And it just felt like I was home. So I I love speaking, and and for me, back then it was different, right? Because I was young and I was new in the church, and all of that praise. Uh, kind of got to my head, right? And so I, I had to be buffered over the years, <laughs> right? thankfully. And but it was it was it, it's the most empowering thing in the world when you empower other people. And for me, speaking isn't about what I do. For me, speaking is about how can I help them. How can I make an impact in someone's life that makes a real difference for them? And that's where I try to focus. And that's what makes it easy for me. I, I don't think about myself when I'm speaking. I, I do my very best to think about the people who are there. 
once you build that confidence, it starts to get easier to, to take a departure from being so structured with speaking. Oftentimes people feel like they need to have this structure, this beginning, this middle, this end, and certain yeah. points and stories and so on. What we were taught in speech class in high school or in college. But once you get really, really comfortable and you're able to focus more on the impact, it's a lot easier to depart from that structure. I still use a structure, sure. but I feel a lot of comfort being able to depart from that if I see an opportunity for an aha moment. Now, when you were 16, Ricardo, you were speaking on Ephesians. Now, yes. what are the topics? <laughs> what are the I think topics? fairly similar topics, although I'm, I'm not speaking in too many. I, I, I work with a lot of ministers, but I don't speak yeah. a lot in churches. Uh, I speak on culture. Okay. I speak on cultural communications. I speak on multicultural leadership. I speak on organizational culture. Uh, doing a lot on belonging right now. You know, the, the whole diversity, equity, inclusion movement has now added the B there to the belonging movement, which I think is very, very deeply misunderstood. Um, and so I, I, mine is really about all the, the cultural communications and all of the, the nuances and complexities of that. And I think most of us don't fully appreciate um, that aspect of life and how much it impacts us. You know, I always tell people, you know, culture shapes us right? Whether we are conscious of it or not, it shapes us. And just like it shapes us, it shapes the people around us. And um, I think that all human conflict is cultural conflict. Mm, Wow. That's interesting. Now, how do you best speak with a multicultural audience to be as culturally relevant as possible for as many people as possible? Uh, Fantastic. First of all, know your audience right? You, you have to know who's, the, who's in the audience. For example, even if you go into a corporation, because most people, when they think culture, they really think race or ethnicity. But culture is, is driven by the beliefs and values and symbols and language and, and expectations or norms of, of a group, given group of people, right? So for example, in a corporation, the C-suite has a given culture that middle-level management does not have. So if I have in my audience, I'm speaking to high-level C-suite executives, I know, for example, that they are what's called low context. So there are, on the two um, tipping, or the two extremes of culture, there are high and low context cultures, right? Um, Most high-level executives are very low context. They're very results-driven. They're very driven by, you know, they value change over tradition. They value individual accomplishment. But high context people, um, a lot of minorities are highly high context. Um, People in certain countries like Latin Americans typically are high context people. They value the relationships over the results, right? And they value tradition over change. And they value and get their sense of identity through their group, not through individual achievement. So who are you speaking with? Are you speaking with high context people who value the relationships, who need that personal touch? Maybe they need more stories. Are you speaking with a group of executives that are very low context? They may need more data, right? And so I think you have to know your audience. You have to know the cultural mix of the people that you're there speaking with. I think the other thing, obviously, in today's world that we're living in, you, you have to know what can be potentially offensive to a given group of people. 
And you have to be able to avoid that. Some people say they talk about cultural sensitivity. I, I prefer not to use that term. I think we need to be more culturally skilled rather than sensitive. My, when my teeth are sensitive, I go to the dentist because they hurt. Sensitivity implies pain. Skill involves the ability to navigate something properly, right? So I think anyone who's speaking publicly has an absolute, uh, it's a requirement for them. They have a responsibility to know their audience. And so are you speaking to an audience that is of multiple mixed ethnicities? For I'll go out to another example. Let's say you're speaking to a group of, in the United States, people say Hispanics, right? And what they really mean is people with Spanish language surnames or people from, you know, perhaps who have come from Latin America and descendancy or, or even North America because Mexico is North America, okay? And yet there's a great difference in cultures between speaking with Cubans and speaking with people from Guatemala. Uh, you know, for example, in the United States, Cubans are under 3% of the Hispanic population, but they hold over 70% of the master's degrees among Hispanic people in the United States. So when I speak with a group of Cubans, I know generally speaking, I am speaking with a more educated, highly formally educated, I don't necessarily mean smarter or more intelligent, I mean more formally educated group of people. Those are cultural norms that are within those particular cultures. So I think you have to look at this a bit more deeply than a lot of people do, right? And even, you know, in the United States, we tend to see things, you know, more along racial lines or ethnic lines. But within these ethnicities and within the races, there's a great deal of diversity even within that, right? And so the more astute we become, the more profound we become in our knowledge set, the better speakers we will be because we will know how to better address people. What is going to resonate with them? A story that I tell that may resonate with me, let's say about Roberto Clemente, who's my favorite all-time Puerto Rican baseball player, may not resonate with a Midwestern white person who grew up um, as a fan of, let's say, Mickey Mantle. Maybe I need to be telling the Mickey Mantle story, not the Roberto Clemente story, if I want to be more culturally relevant with that group of people. But if I'm speaking with a group of Puerto Ricans and I'm talking about baseball, and if I got out of that speech without talking about Clemente, that's a no-no. <laughs> right. So we oftentimes talk about it's important to know your audience, but you're taking it a step further because usually when we say that, we're, we immediately jump to, oh, well, what industry or industries are they in? Right. What's the number of years of experience that they have in their industries? What are their pain points? When we start thinking about knowing our audience, we typically go to that, even what age are they or or. Or, or income levels, right? But yeah. in terms of culture, oftentimes that one kind of gets left by the wayside. So regardless of whether you are speaking to uh, high-level C-suite individuals, mid-level management individuals, how do you properly navigate a difficult audience member? The greatest desire of a human being is to be understood. So if a person is difficult, they are simply saying, I don't believe you understand me. 
So when I have difficult people, I give them a forum to be understood. I will allow them to share. I will validate. I'll give you an example of this. Um, this is some years back in Dallas, Texas. I don't know. I've done a lot of speaking in Dallas. Um, and before I spoke to a group of business owners in the construction industry, uh, the general director of the association I was speaking for pulled me aside and he said, do you see so-and-so? And I said, uh, yeah. And he said, he is very upset that I have you here today. He doesn't want to hear about all this cultural stuff. He doesn't want to hear about all the Hispanics. He thinks they should all go back to Mexico or wherever they came from. And he said, he's just, and he's probably, and he's pretty vocal. So I just want to forewarn you that he's probably going to, and he was right. Right. So he spoke up and the second time he spoke up and I, I'm always very, and, and the second time he spoke up, I said to him, I understand how you could feel the way you feel. It must be incredibly threatening and challenging to have people come into your community who act different, think different, behave differently. And he said, yes, it is. And I said, I understand. I said, and, if, and I said this in public. I said, you know, when we have our break, would, would you be willing to take some time with me? I said, I just want to hear you. So we did. We connected, which, by the way, there are ways to connect with people. And as God is my witness, what I'm going to tell you is the honest to God truth. Two years later, I'm doing a conference for a group of industry leaders in Phoenix, Arizona, at the, at the Palms. You know where the Palms is, right? Right. There are probably 300 people in the room. And I am literally being introduced. And as I'm being introduced, a guy in the audience puts his hand up. And he stands up and he interrupts the person who's introducing me. He says, hey, before he speaks, I want to say something. Guess who it was? It was that guy from Dallas. Same, same guy. The guy was right? 62 or so from North Carolina. So you kind of get a picture, right? Yeah. The guy stands up and he says to the group, the only reason I came was to ask you to listen. He said, I heard him speak two years ago, and it changed me. It changed everything about my life. It changed the way I do business. He said, I have even now begun to hire Hispanic people, and I've learned to love them. Just listen. I could have never, Bridget, paid for that endorsement. Here's a guy two years before who's just opposed completely to this message but because i engaged him because i showed him grace and kindness he was able to take that message deeper that's what you want to do you want to have such an impact and i wish i could find another word that's more powerful than impact but it'll have to do for now you want to create such an impact until 
And I've said this before, but this is the perfect example of what I've been saying. Until months, years later, people remember it and they're moving and thinking differently in a way that is positively shifting the world and the people around them. Everybody, Ricardo Gonzalez is one of the world's foremost experts on culture, as you can see, and cultural, or as you've heard, and cultural communications. He is the author of four books, has spoken for countless large organizations and associations, and he is the founder and CEO of Bilingual America. Now, in your your last response, Ricardo, you indicated there are ways to connect with people. How... How do you connect with your audiences? What are some of those ways? I mean, I heard that one. That was wonderful. How to work with and navigate a difficult audience member. And let me back up and say a quote unquote difficult audience member is relative. And you demonstrated that in your answer. When you have someone who seems like they're being difficult, that may not be the case. It's like you said, he or she wants to be heard. And there's nothing difficult, there's nothing problematic about someone wanting to be heard because that's every last one of us. So back to my original question, you were saying that there are ways to connect with people. How do you connect with your audiences? Well, I think first coming back to what we already discussed, and that is know your audience. And and it goes way beyond know the demographics of your audience to know your audience, right? As we were discussing I, I think you can connect, you know, you look at, I, I have a, a saying that, say, that connection is not skin deep, it's soul deep. And the way we connect with people is through their soul. Okay. And the soul of the human being is the mind, will, and emotions. Okay. So I need to know how my audience thinks. Okay. I have to know what they want. You know, what's their will? What are their desires? And what makes them feel? If I can touch on one of those three things, and hopefully all three, I can connect. But connection happens at the level of the soul. So I have to connect to mind, will, and emotion to be able to do that. So, you know, I know like storytelling is all the rage and very few people are great storytellers, but stories connect. Um, I'm going to give you an example of someone who connected with me. Okay. And, and he actually invited me to do a speech at a conference and I'm Puerto Rican background and I'm, I tend to be quite patriotic, I suppose, <laughs> towards Puerto Rico. And um, when I walked into my hotel room, there was a Puerto Rican flag draped over my bed. And that was the first time anybody ever done something like that for me. And I, I cried. I literally cried. He connected with me at that level. Okay. So I want to connect with my audience in ways that are meaningful to them, but I have to know what those ways are. I don't always know what those ways are. If I, and I think that this goes into prep work, right? Speakers who just show up typically don't show up. You have to put the work in before your speech to really know enough about your people so you can connect with them. And again, what are you connecting to? You're connecting to mind. How do they think? 
the will, what do they desire? And their emotions, what makes them feel? You know, if I'm speaking with a group of new mothers, I'm going to talk about the babies, <laughs> right? Right. Okay. But if I'm speaking to a group of uh, business um, people who are getting ready to retire, we're going to have a different approach. I think the other thing that can really help speakers, and this is practical in nature, to connect that not very many speakers are good at, but I know you, I, I've listened to some of your podcasts and I know you like some very specific tips. So I'd like to, I'd like to give one and I think it will be helpful here as it relates to connection. Yes, please. Most speakers aren't great at use of props. But props, if they're used correctly, can be an incredible connection device. Because people will relate to those props. Okay. Let's say there's a, there's a group of women called the Red Hat Society. Correct? Yes. Okay. I'm a man. So maybe this would be an absurd thing to do. And perhaps some people would say it's cultural appropriation. I don't know. But what if I walked out on stage with one of those red hats? <laughs> one thing I do know is that every one of those women would identify with me. Right. They would at least know that I know that that's important to them. And that's a simple prompt. I wouldn't have to say a word, but that one prompt could allow me to connect. Okay. Uh, I've done work with Major League Baseball. And there are many props that you can use with ballplayers, like baseballs, bats, helmets, <laughs> you know. So you have to find out, I think, what can connect. So I, I love the use of props. I think very few speakers use them properly. And I think that that's a skill that if, you're, if your audience would kind of take seriously and look at how do I develop the use of props? Because it's interesting. Now I'm not just hearing someone speak. I'm looking at something. And props create this great sense of curiosity because it always elicits that question, what's that for? And curiosity is this wonderful teacher. And so I think that there are things that people can do to get people engaged much more quickly. And obviously, you, you know this, because I've listened to you. Don't get up at the beginning of a speech and just start saying, thank you, and I want to recognize. Start your speech. <laughs> and give them the hook, because if you don't connect in immediately, near immediately, I'll tell you something I did one day. I, I was in a group. I, I've heard you ask this question before, and that's like, name something that that happened in a speech that was like, it, it was extraordinary, or it was different, or it made a real impact. And I was, I was thinking about that. I had a group of uh, business leaders in Dallas, Texas. This is a different group. It's not the same group as the other one I told you. This is just right. And these, these, these people were all in the roofing industry. So these were all people think of the roofing industry and they may think about this roofing crew on the local roof. We're talking about people who put the roofs on big stadiums and things like that, you know, big, huge commercial. Roof. It's a multi-billion dollar industry. Right. And in Texas, about 80, 90% of the entire workforce is Hispanic in that industry, right? 
So I got up to speak to the leaders of the industry in that entire region, not just Texas, but the entire region. And I noticed something quickly. It wasn't even my planned opening. And that was, there were no Latinos there. I'm, I'm confused. So all the leadership, <laughs> all the leadership was white Caucasian. All the workforce is Hispanic, but there aren't any Hispanics in the leadership in the meeting. And when I got up, I saw this. And you know what my opening was? What? Pure and total silence. I just stood there. This was the prop. The prop was there wasn't any representation. I just stood there and I looked out in silence for about 15 seconds. And of course, you know what happens when you get quiet. Everybody leans in. And I asked them a question. And by the way, questions are great connectors. Here's the question. What don't you see? And everybody starts looking around and no one knows. And then I said, I'll tell you what you don't see. You don't see Hispanics and leadership in this industry. And I would like to know why. And today we're going to talk about how to make that happen. And everybody was right there. And we saw a tremendous shift in that industry after 15 seconds of silence. And we should never estimate the power of those moments when we're given those moments. We have to take them. We have to be bold enough to take them. We have to be respectful in the process. I didn't rail them out. I didn't ostracize them. I didn't call them a bunch of racist. And I didn't do that. I don't do that stuff. I just said, what, what don't we see? What don't we see? It's powerful, right? But um, in, in my book, The Six Stages of Cultural Mastery in stage one, I give seven different areas in which we can learn about people in order to connect with them in a natural way. So if somebody wants to go deeper on that, that would be the place to get that. Everybody definitely make sure you grab a copy of all of his books, not just that one, but all of Ricardo's books. Well, it's very clear how you keep content fresh, because I know there are times when you may deliver some of the same content multiple times in the course of a year. So we, we understand how you keep it fresh. You ask questions, you use props, maybe even use stories. You look around, you observe what's going on, you know your audience, and that's how you're able to keep content fresh when you're having to deliver it a number of times. But I'm wondering, what are some of your presentation must-haves, whether it's what you do before you go on the stage, if it's preparation? I, I get a sense of there are some hallmarks of a Ricardo presentation. I get that. But I'm wondering, do you have just this little toolbox of things that just must be in place for a presentation for you? Yeah. And I already mentioned that props. Yeah. Okay. That, that, you know, you have, 
you have your obvious things that you know sure. your present your your display your your projectors your clickers and you know I would say this uh, I've I've watched a lot of speakers and and you know be very careful with your powerpoints that they're much more visual than 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 written right first of all you don't want people reading your speech you know people are going to get lost in that use visuals use visuals and and use them in ways that are compelling ways that create emotion uh, ways that get people to lean in right and I, I think that's important but i i i believe that every speaker before they go on stage should have at least two or three props ready to go those props should actually be on stage because if those props are on stage before the speaker comes out the audience will be asking themselves i wonder what is going to happen with that yeah I have an activity that I sometimes do depending on the audience and, and the objectives. And it requires me to bring a little bag of balls. Well, actually it's a pretty good size Ziploc bag of these little small rubber balls that you might see in one of those gumball type machines at the dentist's office that the kids get as a prize TMI. But I I've had audience members, they'll see those balls. They'll see that bag of, balls sitting on the stage and they'll even say oh I wonder what we're going to do in here like you said it just creates that curiosity something as simple as a child's toy can get their attention and then when they see what we do with them it's uh it's a lot of fun yeah if you think about it a lot of speakers will sometimes even put their books up on stage and things Mm -hmm. like that and that's just all about me so the, the audience, before they ever hear the speaker, is already thinking, oh, this person's just here to sell their books. That's mm-hmm. the visual. That's the image. I think, we, I think we have to think through from the standpoint of what that audience member may be, uh, what their perspective is, right? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. It's all about the audience. So yes. much less about the speaker. In short order, you will have the opportunity to ask me a question, Ricardo, or maybe a couple of questions. I don't know. My next question for you has to do with the fact that you have not always been a confident speaker, but you kind of have always been a confident speaker. It's just kind of a little complicated. Talk to us about your confidence as a speaker. Where does it come from? You know, I, I was telling you before in our, in our conversation before we came live. Yeah, you know, I, I wasn't a good student because I, I didn't care. And I grew up in my, um, just to give you an idea, my dad was one of 27 children from the same father uh, from Puerto Rico. And my mother was an orphan uh, from the state of Kentucky. I, I am literally, and no offense intended, I am literally a Puerto Rican hillbilly. And um, I grew up in two cultures, which was very confusing and very painful because there was a lot of cultural conflict in our home, which is obviously why I do what I do. And so I didn't grow up with a lot of confidence. We weren't in a home where there was a lot of praise. I had an older brother. If there was any praise to be given, it was going to him, <laughs> right? And, and it, it wasn't coming my way. And so I didn't grow up with that. I, the way that I have learned to have confidence is honestly, just to invert it. I I don't give a lot of thought to myself when I'm speaking. 
I think that when we're thinking about ourselves and how people view us or how they're perceiving us, that can be frightening. And that's why people are fearful on stage. If, if you think about it deeply, people are fearful on stage because they're concerned about how other people are perceiving them. But when we invert that and we ask ourselves, how can I make an impact or how can I have positive influence in this person's life who may be hurting, who may need this message? My focus shifts completely. I'm no longer thinking about myself. And when that happens, my fear goes away. So I, I have confidence in my message. I think that's important. I, I believe people need it. And I, I think that if I were to say to speakers, just make sure that your message is something that people actually really, really need. And if you do that, you'll, you'll be a long way down the path of having confidence. And because it's, it's really about the message, you know, you're the messenger, we're the messengers. But sometimes the messenger has to get out of the way of the message and let the message sign. But if we're always concerned about how people are perceiving us or, you know, our image, then I, I, th I think that's frightening. And I think, generally speaking, we become a little bit too self-centered and focused to be great speakers. I, I like that. I cannot disagree. What is your question for me? Who is the one leader in history, present or past, who's had the greatest impact on you in your life? Mm. I cannot pick just one. That's number one. Okay. Number two, I see leadership in everybody. Okay. So I am able to learn from the 16-year-old next door or the 76-year-old retiree across the street or the eight-year-old third grader at the elementary school around the corner. And I find, I find a lesson in the interactions that I have with people throughout the day or throughout the week. And just the most average person you could see on a street could actually make an impact on me and maybe not even know it. But I cannot pick any one person. And I label everybody as a leader in some regard. Okay, that's interesting. That's an interesting response. Can I follow up that question? Absolutely. So I, I think that tells us a lot about you, and that is you're, you're a learner and also open to being taught by people who are at all levels of society, which is important for us, right? I notice you have a lot of books behind you. So I, I'll ask this, and you, you choose to answer this in A or B, you, you pick A or B. <laughs> So it's either what's what's your favorite book of all time Ooh. and why and or who's your favorite author? Again, I, I oh, you have to have really one or two. No, here's something that's really important about me, Ricardo. I 
I tend to not put things, people, or ideas on pedestals too much. Okay. So to say I've got a favorite this, that, or the other, there are very few things that I can think of that I have a favorite anything of a favorite song, a favorite celebrity, a favorite book, a favorite, you know what I mean? I, I, and I, I, and I don't know if most people understand that. That's one thing about me. For yeah, instance, that's interesting. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I, I remember, uh, there's there, you know, maybe there's an artist who, you know, has a song that I like or something like that. And someone will say, but Bridget, that's a song by so-and-so. Don't you like her? Well, yeah, but just because it's a song by someone who happens to sing a song that I like doesn't mean I like everything that she produces. That's true. <laughs> you know, so, uh, and I don't know if that's, that is, is, you know, directly connects to what we're talking about, but I well, truly- but I have one more question, just one. Okay, yeah. Okay, because this is, this is for people aspiring to speak. Yeah. Let's say there's a, an aspiring speaker. Okay. Right. And they're just coming out of high school or just in college and they want to be a professional public speaker. And they come to you and they say, what's my path? What would you recommend me to do to reach that status of a sought after professional public speaker? Where would you start me? I'm raw. I'm just starting. What I'd like you to do is give me that path. What's that path? Okay. You're making, you're making me come up with a direct answer. So there are, there is a number of steps. The first one is confirm for yourself that this is truly what you want to do. Look at other speakers, and I'm not saying look at them in terms of getting tips or trying to be like them, but truly look at other speakers and think about what it is they do and ask yourself, is that really what I want to do? Pay attention that that one hour you see on the stage is, is the culmination of hours, days, weeks, months decades of preparation, studying, knowledge, experience, education on down the line, thinking, writing, reading, connecting with others. Number one, confirm that it's truly what you want to do. Next, figure out what is that burning, I don't want to say passion, but that burning lesson that if someone were to give you a microphone where every single one in the universe could hear and understand that lesson, that's what you would tell. Figure out what is that lesson deep down inside of you that you need to tell it. And it's okay if someone already has the stage and they've already shared a lesson similar to it, but they haven't shared the lesson in the way you would share it with the stories that you would provide with it, with the experience that you've provided with this. So one, make sure speaking is what you want to do Two, find that deep, deep lesson you want to share. And then finally, don't stop. Don't, don't get scared. Don't run away from a no for every 
speaking engagement that you see someone get confirmed or they're posting about it on social media or they're putting up the selfies or whatever, for every engagement that they get confirmed, there were who knows how many no's before they got to that, that yes. So the third piece of advice I, I give you is, is, is don't stop and don't be afraid of the no's. If it's truly what you want to do, number one, and number two, you figured out that burning lesson to share. Number three is don't be afraid of the no's and don't stop. Well, thank you for being a guest on my show. I appreciate it. <laughs> Those were tough questions. And I wasn't trying to, I wasn't trying to dodge them or be difficult with you. That no, I think it's insightful. Stance. It's insightful. It's truly how we learn stance. about each other. We we don't necessarily have to get the answer we're seeking. Yeah, we yeah. just need to get the answer. Right? <laughs> <laughs> oh, goodness. Okay, Ricardo, if you had this ginormous microphone, that everyone can hear the message that you have to provide, what would be that last big burning lesson to everybody, whether they're aspiring speakers, they're already crushing it, they're thinking about it, what is one last important piece that we need? Can I give two? You can give three, but two's fine. <laughs> All right, I'll give three. I'll give three. Here's the first one. We cannot know people. We cannot know people until we know them at the deepest levels. Okay. We cannot know them until we know them at the deepest levels. It's just, it's just not possible. We have to dig deeper. If we're going to reach our audiences, we have to reach our people. Okay, so that's that's one. The second one is whatever's inside of us, it really whatever, it will come out at some point in time, pressure, whatever. And we have to do a lot of work internally to be the best version of ourselves. And And... Speaking, most people think speaking is an outward thing. It's really an inward thing, right? Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And then the last thing I would say is that a message from the mind reaches the mind and a message from the heart reaches the heart. And we need more people reaching hearts not just a mind. So be cognizant of the message that it's shaped in ways that are actually going to create change in people, not just get them to think differently, but to also really affect real meaningful, deep change. So I think those are the three things I would leave with, but at, at the end of the day, a message from the heart reaches the heart and we need more speakers who speak from the heart. Yes, yes, and yes. Ricardo Gonzalez, it has been an absolute pleasure having you on the show today. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you, Bridget. And thank you for listening to today's episode. Until next time, make sure you always own the microphone.